Now then, welcome to the first episode of the Dangers of the Big Little Picture podcast. Today's episode is somewhat of a continuation of the introduction episode, really, where we generally speak and outline what the podcast is all about in terms of the concept behind the Dangers of the Big Little Picture, where that came from, why it's only been discussed now, and then just the overall structure, or lack of structure to be honest, heading into future episodes. So to provide a little bit of context on how today's episode came to be, I need to admit some failings on my part when initially outlining episode 1. I can't, and to be honest, don't think I should anyway, deny the fact that the danger of the big little picture came from an urge to articulate what I had to say. Perhaps initially I listened to that urge too much, and probably too little, too much in the sense that episode 1 was originally going to feature one of the upcoming guests from a future episode. But I found myself orchestrating the conversation too obviously. I found myself asking questions with my response already in mind. And look, I know that's what podcasting does allow you to do. I'm not going to be too hard on myself. But I was definitely using it wrongly. That weren't fair, wouldn't have been good listening, and would have wasted the time I had with someone really interesting. On the flip side though, like I say, definitely too little. In the sense that all that probably came from me not thinking I had the right to say what I had to. When of course I did everyone does and progressing into future episodes with future guests having that context of me there will probably provide more organic friction genuine agreement and authentic discussion which is ultimately what we all want from our podcasts so that's what today is really as you can tell from the title it's a conversation with myself and to the people who know me that probably sounds like a fucking dangerous prospect i know but i'll probably be pretty much be answering if that's the right word when there's no questions the same things and pulling at the same threads that any future guest will be I'll be talking a little bit about my upbringing and more life-oriented experiences. I'll be opening up about struggles I've faced from circumstance and my own bad choices and detailing the lessons I feel like I've learned or I'm yet to. I'll be talking about my inspirations, about things that have influenced me me of late. I'll be revealing aspects of my practice, going into some specific projects and then ultimately, through all of that, hopefully be able to simply convey my overall outlook on creativity, what it means to me and then what that means for me. I think this episode is important in principle, as this is the genuine part to the idea. This is the reason I started this, and I am one side of the dialogue. Giving myself the chance to articulate these things is important for me, while it should then allow me to then remove myself slightly from the space where I can allow others to do the same. That should let those alternate perspectives, different practices, and interesting people give even more to this open-ended discussion about creativity. So if you can bear one full episode with me, we might just be on to something. So with that in mind, enjoy this podcast however you normally enjoy them and welcome to episode one of The Dangers of the Big Little Picture, a conversation with myself. Am I making history? Yeah, am I working out? Only with the moon does so episode one straight in and this is all quite new to me really like i said in the intro i have no real idea how this one's going to turn out and i guess that makes this episode another one of those one-off type episodes And to be honest, I think the first three will all come across very different because they were all very different to make creatively. If the introduction was more about script writing and then how I can take that into talking naturally, then this one is more about conversing with myself and what's the right way to open up. 
And then the third one, or the next one, where I have a guest, will be more about my interviewing skills and the art of the back and forth, which is really exciting for me. It means each one has been its own separate test and fulfilling in their own right, and it's meant the whole project has become like my mini Everest, which is what I like for my projects. I like it to feel like the next biggest thing, the thing that's pushing me the most. My prediction for this episode, I think structurally you'll hear as the listener a gradual transition, not only in a more literal sense where you see like me growing up, uh, but retrospectively of someone, maybe like most creatives, I guess that's what the future episodes will tell, but of someone just existing creatively to begin with, then having creative reactions to real life, then making creative actions part of the real life. And then hopefully just being back someone who's existing creatively once again, just after figuring out the place and all this and understanding a little bit more about who they are and what life means to them. So I'm going to get straight into it, straight into childhood. In a life sense, I can't complain at all, really. I'm well aware that, relatively speaking, I was quite blessed with a distinctly normal start in life. I was very close with my immediate family, mum and dad, and I was the youngest of three, so I had two older siblings, brother and a sister, which I think helped me in quite an obvious way early on. I always felt protected and looked after. And then I think as you grow up, that hinders you in other ways and then starts to help you in quite weird ways later on, which I'll come back to anyway. But I had very close friends. I was very active. I always felt supported. I was always a kid who was outside roughing it. I didn't mind getting hurt and getting into a few scrapes. To be honest, I just wanted to be amongst everything, really. And to be fair, my mum did joke that I pretty much ran straight out the womb, but saying it out loud on the podcast, I'm not sure if that makes me look good or hair look bad. But anyway, creatively, I was drawing from an early age, and I think that was my first real creative outlet. But I was always making, always thinking of things, always building things, always imagining. And it's quite funny to look back at this because there's a few real specific memories I have of these times. There was one where a couple of teachers came to my house after they'd rang my parents after I'd drawn a tiger in long grass, apparently, when I was five. I can remember all the times that I I had to do my sister's homework, which will probably kill me for saying. And the countless times I used to get all my drawing stuff out and then sit there moaning, asking what to draw. And this was probably the first tell that the idea was going to be something that was really important to me later on in life, as opposed to just exercising of, of a skill, really. Um, as I could have obviously drawn anything in front of me, but I wouldn't if it were interesting enough. But I was always encouraged to use my imagination, and through drawing, I went from being a kid who enjoyed it to being a bit older and being able to draw quite realistically, to then being someone who was quite bored of what I saw and would layer in loads of things that improved, if that's for want of a better word, the real scene. Looking back, it's not necessarily like I see this person as not me, but I like to keep him separate. Uh, it almost feels like the me of now was in there like I said with the ideas thing, but I like to think I hadn't even started to build him yet, as opposed to already in that process. I kind of love that weirdly, and I want to protect it. I love that there was a time where I was nothing else but that, just a kid who loved to draw. I think it's my most unloaded memory of myself, a memory that still feels childish today, and I appreciate that not everyone has that chance, so I don't take it for granted really. Um, I also don't want to do it actively. I actively don't want to project that had to have been someone who was on some kind of destiny trip from a young age as well, or someone who was always going to be who I was, or I was going to be this creative genius, because I don't think that's right, even if even if maybe I think it's true. And to be honest, one of the lessons I feel like I have learned later in life is not finding that sense of finality to someone's character admirable anyway. I'd much rather cherish the motion to someone as opposed to their digging, their grey areas to their black and white, or remove the sense that someone can only ever be one thing. 
But the reason I say quite specifically that he hadn't started to have been built yet is because there is a huge part of me that was born from that opposite fire, from that way of thinking and that overthinking. But like I say, I say it firmly because I like to think of that time as void of all that, of all that came a little bit later on. So yeah, I was a naive kid uh, with no ulterior meanings to things, no altered memories, everything just was and so was I. And I took that into school, really. So moving into school or growing into that period, again, I have to admit that I found school relatively easy. I appreciate that school necessarily isn't always the nicest place, the easiest place, maybe even the most productive place for some people. And it's hard both in and out of it uh, based on what you've got going on in life. So in no way do I say what I say at the start lightly. And like I say, I appreciate how lucky I was that it was like that for me. But again, weirdly, I sort of look back on that me quite admirably, or maybe even jealous in some ways, that things just were as they were. I think perhaps in some way for creative people, that's what life is. It's trying to get back to that level of naivety after we complicate our own lives down the line. Back to where things you do for fulfilment are based around actually achieving that feeling of fulfilment. I think as well, this is also the age where the distraction happens creatively. You're meeting people that one day won't inspire you anymore. You're doing things that one day you'll think wasted your time. You're feeling things that convince you of things too easily. You're seeing things that will seem wrong one day and you're hearing things you'll one day disagree with and all that's fine. That's ultimately why that journey back to that state though, I feel, that state of chasing happiness and fulfilment where that's the only priority either feels ridiculously hard when you've grown up or a lot of people actually give up on it altogether. I think... I think this time in general probably was the start of that for me as well. You don't quite know how to harness what you've got within, so you start pouring it into things that are probably just the most full-on at the time, the things where you're meeting people, where you're getting the biggest reactions, where things are new, and the things you get instant gratification for. Uh, in a small sense, that is a version of a more refined character later on in life. I think the difference is, though, that at that age, everything is very much based in short-termism because it's all you know. But once you realise a lot of the things you're giving yourself to don't necessarily have that deeper layer to them, a lot of these things start to fall away and start causing that friction within your identity. And then when you throw in puberty, girl, school, pressures and all that, it ends up being one hell of a whirlwind, really. For me, an example of this was football, an example of something that I not only poured a lot of my creative energy into early on, but also an example of something falling away as I got older. Football was what most people saw me as, and in my hometown, a lot of people probably still do. It's this that probably gave birth to an underlying disdain for a lot of things. I've definitely been through times where I've regretted all the years it had to be my focus. Thinking, imagine if I'd had 10 years more at who I am today, or imagine if the people around me were more in my way of thinking, or what choice would I have made in that scenario if, if, if that wasn't in my life? And it weirdly also made me strive for strange things that young people probably don't normally strive for, like anonymity and then in an opposite way of thinking pushing some kind of rebranding of myself this is something i've definitely got over as it's wrong and petulant on so many levels and i actually believe this friction within my character has ultimately helped balance it and align it more clearly internally if maybe not externally as i won't ever be able to change what others think anyway but yeah i played at a very high level for a long period of time i was at a professional club hull city for nine years and through that, I travelled a lot, achieved a lot, learnt a lot, and did a lot of things any young kid would be so grateful for. And I truly am. But it's funny, because in a very square industry, I was always the odd one out. 
I never seemed to be into the same things. I was always very bad at the change room banter, and to be honest, I still am. Uh, I seem to remember the pressure more than the experience, and to be honest, I saw the sport differently to others. I played football like it was another creative endeavour of mine, really. I played in between the lines, I was very technical, and my all-round game was based around being a clever player. Like I say, my time with football, or rather my feelings towards my time with football, have evolved drastically as I've got older. Even towards the end of my time at Hull, when I was still there, I realised things weren't going to be quite as straightforward as they were. It was never going to be just about accepting a contract if it was given. And then when I eventually got released, and deservedly so, I had options still within football, but I chose my other path. Deep down, I think I always knew, because I backed myself up at school, and I always kept my creative work on the same level of importance. Um, but yeah, that contradiction of me, that difference between sport and art, was never quite understood really. I'd be there in the classroom at Hull on Tuesdays where we had to miss school because we used to do this day release thing where you would get a taste of what it'd be like if you were full-time. And generally, everybody were there not giving a fuck about their schoolwork and they couldn't wait to get out on the training pitch. But I was there doing my drawing, doing my painting or doing my writing. And like I say, when everyone else just weren't bothered. And it was like when I visited schools in America when I was a little bit older hearing different art faculties saying that they'd never set up a link with any sporting team before was quite funny and quite interesting. But talking before about life events that make certain things fall away in terms of their importance, I guess mine at this stage would have been the divorce of my parents and all the fallout of that, really. It was definitely one of the weirder days of my life, getting a text off my mum in history and just walking out because I had no idea what to do. Um, My mundane life, or should I call it the everyday threads to my life were suddenly at the complete mercy of this new horrible reality but I felt myself grow up quite quickly this may sound more positive than it actually is or it actually felt at the time but through all that bullshit I found myself knowing quite clearly what I cared about and emotionally I felt quite mature it was probably the start of a feeling like I had an old head on young shoulders which ended up being quite a weathered old man on young shoulders but I think this is where being the youngest helped me weirdly I think I had so many examples of ways in which I didn't want to be. I found myself steering my sister towards what would help her. I found myself being there for my mum in ways others couldn't. I found myself maintaining a relationship with my dad and keeping the situation firmly in the truth for others. I think this all came from a place where life suddenly felt really important. People suddenly became really important and being proactive with my emotions became important and valuing happiness above all became something I would constantly strive for. I didn't like mediating it at all and I didn't like the fact that as the youngest there was people older than me that needed me but I felt like I could and when others clearly couldn't I was always going to try. Selfishly I tried to do the things though however hard that would mean I would keep all the things that I would need or I wanted in my life later on and I think I still do do that to this day really. It's not necessarily about having a button to get rid of pain but it's about having a button to speed up the process and the button is always you and you can always press it. You just have to see the things that you need to do. As always, I found myself falling back on what I enjoyed creatively to help me through it. I found myself expressing myself creatively to help me articulate it and all of a sudden it felt like I had a chance to do life because I was learning and adapting to how everyone else was doing it and dealing with it. It was in this time that somehow something as trivial as football was always going to end up falling away. I'll always be grateful for the things it taught me. Things like the ruthlessness of industry, 
the selfish streak to the ambitious individual, dedication to a craft, passion to a hobby, you name it. And in a backhanded way, I'll also always be grateful that it didn't mind being the scapegoat for me realising that it wouldn't actually become part of my identity. But above all though, I think I'll be grateful the most to the balance that it has provided to my character down the line. I think with any form of oppression, an alternate movement that combats it, there has to be a tipping of the scales. You can't just stop at a perceived equality point. Um, it has to go the other way first so you can actually know where the midpoint is and then you can actively strive for that properly. And look, I'm not going to compare feminism and racism to me not wanting to play football. Of course, I'm just not going to do that. But using it purely as an analogy, I guess it, if you make football the oppressor, it's been the creative streak in me that I've pushed further and further since. I've definitely pushed it too far, but I've pushed it to a place where I feel I'm quite aligned in terms of my creative and overall midpoint, and that's, I guess, what I'm working back to now. In hindsight as well, I feel like my compromise of character, even though living through it maybe didn't feel like it, has come from a much easier angle. Like I say, I've often wished wrongly that the people in my life were like me or that I had more years at whatever of working on my projects, and like what I said before. But I see a lot of people, especially where I'm from, who've had all that and wasted it or are quite lost or behind or unhappy or like the finished version of themselves was them at 15 or 16 or whatever. And for them, that was okay. It feels like their compromise is adding the parts to their lives they don't actually like, the things they don't necessarily value. But because they need to and have no choice like everyone has to, they struggle with the idea and they struggle with the idea that the addition of these things will stifle their perceived identity. I know because I've been there. You turn back to the things you already found meaning in to make these unnecessary things more meaningful and they can't because they don't need to be more meaningful. They just need to be taken care of to let all else fly. For me now, and I say now specifically because like I say, this weren't always how I felt, but it feels like the opposite. I'm glad I'm working out who I could be or might be or want to be based on wholeheartedly knowing what I don't want to be anymore. It means the things I'm adding, the things I actually want to add. It feels like constant enhancement and all the things I don't value, I'm actually replacing with new things all the time or find new ways of digesting them or new ways of digesting them that are more personal to me. Uh, take money, for example. I won't ever live a life that places an importance on money. I know that. But I can still take care of it to let other things flourish. Um, but I'll get more to that in the midsection. This type of compromise, though, it paves the way for prolificity, for productivity, for fulfillment and happiness, for life, really. And it's wrapped up in a genuine identity, not some wanky political correct attempt at it or some justified artsy lazy, lazy version of it. And I think I'm going to end the first part here, as I feel I've gone into my upbringing and school and some things in my life that have informed where I'm at right now more than enough, to a point where I feel like I'm going into the now way of looking back at them too much. Because trust me, there's a whole lot more that I do wrong, there's a whole lot more I get screwed up with, a whole lot more mistakes that I make, a load more that kicked me in the balls with some lessons I needed to learn, and a lot more existential digging that I had to do that have allowed me to talk as brazenly as I just have. So... In the next part, I'm going to go into leaving school, life at university, and then my struggles post-university, and just all the dilemmas of that time and how all that fed me as a person and obviously as a creative, with the emphasis shifting probably more towards that. So if that was the blue sky thinking phase of me as a kid, let's step into the real world.
So, like I said at the end of the last part, um, this is going to be more about me growing into me post-school, into university, and then into real life. Um, so, yeah, sixth form was interesting. Um, I maintained that it's probably the toughest years academically and also the most conflicting with all that's going on at that age in general. And in terms of what I was like creatively, when I say creatively, that's through the filter, that's still the education system. But I guess I was a bit more of a maverick, really. Uh, I don't want to romanticise that in any way, but I was always pushing boundaries. I fought the system quite a lot. I was quite headstrong. I wanted to do my own thing. Uh, this was when I started to love discussing things. I loved experimenting with things. I threw myself into all things creative at this point. Um, I can remember dropping business as it clashed with my literature, design and fine art work. And I can remember my business teacher, uh, Miss Russell. She was a bit of a, bit of a ruthless woman, to be fair. Um, she sort of didn't give a fuck. But yeah, I can remember her pulling me aside and saying, I like you, you're good at this, but you hate it. And you're never going to do any extra work that I set you. And I really appreciated her honesty, to be honest. And she was right. I knew I was never going to do it because I just valued my other work a lot more. Then comes all the pathways you're supposed to take. And at this point, I had an unbelievable set of friends. We did all sorts together and I was quite wrapped up in it. It was like childhood dream or whatever. Um, we were just having the best time all the time. But then came all the decisions you've got to make, deciding whether I was going to go to university or not, or what I was going to do post-school. And at that time, I was unsure. I was very behind with all the application side of things. I was sort of just letting what happened happen. And to be honest, looking back, I can't even remember doing a lot of the stuff that I needed to do to actually get to university. Um, but yeah, at the time, I was also selling paintings to varying degrees of success. I had a couple... Uh, one called Autumn Brook and then an oil seascape on board that I'd sold quite a number of copies of. And I really wanted to go at it on my own, to be honest. Uh, not because I wanted more control or be my own boss or to work less, but because for a split second, I believed I could, which I'll get back to in a little bit because it's something that I've toyed with all my life, really. But I ultimately decided to go on the grounds that I wanted to purely learn more about my craft. I wanted to keep expressing myself and I loved it and I'm proud that I can say that was my reason for going. Uh, I was always going to learn about myself, I was always going to make mistakes and strive for independence, I was always going to party and have a good knees up and have one hell of a time, I was always going to throw myself into meeting people and trying new things but I look back on that decision and it maintains a layer of integrity within me and to my relationship with creativity, something which I always admire in other creatives. You know, when, when musicians play or when artists paint or when people talk from a genuine place of truth. So, yeah, first year went smoothly, quite uneventful, really. Um, I did well. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Uh, second year, though, I prioritised all the wrong things. I got caught up in this idea of the whole package, the look, the life everything i let all the wrong things take preference and my art suffered i suffered people around me suffered and looking back i was probably very close to being a bit of a wanker i probably came across quite pretentious with no real back into what i was saying and i was very close to to being the sort of person that i would end up not respecting at all but i thought i was doing the right thing i started to believe my own cover story as well i think i convinced myself i was almost better for valuing life more 
But this was all built on false pretenses. I talked a good game, but I had nothing to back it up. I used all my energy up on telling myself and probably telling others deep down that I was a good designer instead of actually just being one. And this was another example of a time where I only just scraped through when I should have flourished. And it was my first snapshot of how the older you get, the more that's on the line, the harder things are, you realise you can't just phone it in anymore. So third year, I made a lot of changes and I made everything deliberately harder for myself. I moved to Manchester and had to commute because I was studying in Sheffield at the time. I got a part-time job, which used up some of my spare time. So I had to use time better. I was paying more out financially. But all these things forced me into becoming a lot better version of myself or a version of myself that would uh, do well in my final year of uni. I used to commute. I used the commute time as matty time. I got to prepare for the day better. I got to enjoy the things I enjoyed in that time. Uh, I realised I had more time than I thought and I got to digest the day on the way home. I also made use of the Peak District because I love being outdoors and that fueled my creativity a little bit more i had to be more organized because if if not it would have cost me more money i had to be more diligent with money otherwise i couldn't afford to study or to live where i lived i had to make sensible decisions about renting and location and all that stuff and i had to use my time wisely with having more on my plate so less of less of it and i ended up having the best year at university that I could have and the best out of all three and just speaking about manchester i loved it I always think when people from a place absolutely love it regardless of what your impression of it is or how it looks it says a lot about the spirit of the place and it's the only city I've ever really felt at home in because being a country kid with a constant calling to the coast for me cities are, are not necessarily a place that that I do well in but this time I, I proved to myself that I was humble enough to look inwards and say do better I proved to myself that I could make a change when I needed to and I proved to myself even though I sort of said I made everything harder, that when I put myself first, my happiness first, my lifestyle first, I succeed a lot more. I came out one mark short of a first, and I had to accept it. I put the three years, it, that grade in general, one mark off a first, put the three years into perspective for me in an instant. And to be honest, I'd never really given a fuck about grades. Like I say, I went to uni just to learn my craft and do my projects. But my whole third year, showed me what sort of creative I would be and the whole three years as a whole showed me the different types of creative that I maybe need to be for different scenarios and maybe what creative I shouldn't be. It showed me what scenarios I would thrive in and what I wouldn't. It showed me when I liked myself and when I didn't and it's funny because a lot of people said that I should have challenged that grade you know being one mark off maybe I would have got it but it sat well with me. I didn't deserve the first. Uh, maybe I was talented enough to get it uh, maybe I could have got it, maybe I could have got it remarked and then get it and then got it but it was a reminder of that second year and it was a reminder that if I don't do anything, if I don't look after myself and if I don't place that importance on creativity then I'll be nothing and I didn't deserve to scrape through another time. So what's interesting about this is post-university how quickly I forgot this because post-university I laid out the, the wrong path for myself and the wrong path for others. It was a path that ultimately led to the darkest part of my life uh, relative to me. And although there were many factors that contributed to it, I maintained the fact that fundamentally I orchestrated it. Um, it's going to be quite hard talking about this really and maybe it won't come across like that because of the way I'm going to talk about it. But 
it's the first time I'm really delving into that time. But university ended for me in a bit of a whirlwind with a lot of change happening. I left a relationship, I had to move home, I had to sort a lot out. And I had a lot of big life things happening. And then at the same time, I was supposed to start this rip-roaring ride of a career in the design industry. Uh, and all while being little old Matty, always happy. Except I didn't start that career. And I actually didn't want to do that. I've always wanted, like I said before, to produce my own work. More in the vein of a creative who's hired based off their thinking and their approach. You know, I'm always going to produce work off my own back anyway. It's always felt like that was my calling. It's always what I've wanted to do. And if it's one thing that deep down I've been totally confident in, it's that. And that's not to say I, I, I ever thought that was going to be easy. Or that's not to say the world owes me something. But I've always felt the work I've produced has a place in this world. I think that's also why my work has always ran parallel to my life. Because when I release something, it feels like there's something to be listened to. And and that it comes from me, not some diluted company or studio or team or 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 trying to worm it in into freelance work. But myself, like anybody fresh out of uni, was burdened by expectations. And sh and I shone a light on a path that was maybe the most admirable for friends and family, a path that made a lot of sense, that hinted at a desire for security and comfortability, which is what most people who care about you want for you. It was one that seemed the most ambitious, one that would stand up against my peers and lecturers, but it was also the most conventional, so at that so at first, there was very little question from surrounding people. But deep down, I knew that I wanted the opposite. And this caused a lot of friction amongst other people when I was seen to be doing absolutely nothing about the next phase of my life. At the time, I blamed them, I'll be honest, for wanting something different of me. Even after, I blamed them because like I did before, I think I believed my own cover story. I felt like I couldn't do what I wanted to do, but I wasn't even actively trying to do what I wanted to do. I was actively just trying not to do what I said I was going to do. It was only later on that I realised what else did they have to go on other than what I said. I should have been more honest about what I wanted to do. And then when they saw me working towards that, they would have been way more supportive. I think whenever I've not listened to myself, the true inner self, my sort of head voice, I've made bad decisions because ultimately I, la I then lack the conviction in the making of the said decision. It means I need double the energy after the fact just to stick it at just to stick at it. And this was no different. And when I lacked the conviction in the first place and then needed double the energy, I ended up doing the opposite. I became lazy because I resented it. Um, without fully bashing myself, I obviously needed to learn new ways of processing things. This was a different phase in my life. Or I needed to make sense of some things. But it's not like I was even being productive in that sense and I ended up making more bad decisions. I took a lot of work on for no money and trapped myself and let my money dwindle down, something which stunted myself creatively and made a lot of my decisions about how I could achieve what I wanted in the long term. I did a lot of things that I thought were easy as possible, as quick as possible, as stress-free as possible. And like I've already said, I already knew that that's not how things worked. Um, I didn't want my career to be like that. And to be honest, I never thought it would be like that anyway. And it bit me on the ass big time. Um, my money dried up, my time dried up, my brain dried up, my mood dropped, my health dropped. Every day ended as it started. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to sleep. I fell out with family all the time. I couldn't talk to them and I didn't think that I needed to anyway. 
but then when I didn't, they didn't know, and then they couldn't help or didn't want to help because they didn't know. I distanced myself from the world entirely. I immersed myself in things that romanticised this feeling, thinking it was somehow hitting it head on to come out the other side, but I got lost in the descent of it. I didn't trust my own head voice anymore. I didn't trust anything I did anymore. Everything became about can'ts and the struggle, and in trying to fix it, I even convinced myself this was all part of the process, this struggle that every creative person faces, like I was some pain failed artist and it became who I was it became a whole identity and because that was linked to creativity I prolonged it as it's all I had to go on and in doing that I compounded everything I let myself slip down even further and like I say it became my whole entire identity which was ultimately an identity of failure not necessarily failure in a career sense but just as a person I was not I was not good on all fronts was I always going to be someone who was digging the world up, I used to say to myself? Was I always going to be a coulda, woulda, shoulda at everything in life? Was I always going to be wandering aimlessly and was I ever going to have a purpose again? Was I ever going to be happy again? At the time, I thought not genuinely. I, it felt like all the doors had slammed shut. I felt like a wounded animal and I convinced myself I had no time because I had no money. Everything felt impossible. Balance felt like it would never exist again. I felt old, I felt sick, I felt tired, my head hurt, my eyes hurt. I couldn't make sense of anything and the way back to what I needed to be felt ten times harder. Maybe because with that place I eventually got to, I wanted to prove to people how bad it was first but that only made the whole process last even longer. I can remember wanting to see someone about it all but feeling embarrassed about it and, and I can remember not wanting it to be very clinical I wanted it to be where I was comfortable I can remember lying all the time I can remember not recognising my actions when I've always felt part of this existential quest to be wholesome um, before this I could digest the feeling quite well and then act in a way that I wanted to be seen as before, act, before acting in an irrational way but I was acting out, I was acting irrationally I was acting pathetically I can remember having conversation after conversation after conversation and feeling people weren't even remotely on the same page, which led to an arrogance deep down because that was the closest thing that I had to believe in in myself again. But that was also wrong. How could they be on the same page anyway when I'd not said anything? They'd seen me regress as a human being and it's not like my creative work was flourishing at the same time, so there was no push to everything else's pull. That was also dead too. So they would fall back on addressing all the black and white things that were contributing to my very poor mental health state at the time. But obviously I only wanted to fix my mental health. Because your brain's a tricky thing, like we all know, and we all have a different relationship with mental health. And it's something that, again, I won't proclaim any authority on the matter because it's something we know very little about. But when all these things you don't actually think are things are important, your brain goes between self-destruct mode and crying for help mode. It never blames the things that, it never blames the thing like those things that are actively contributing to what's making you happy, and and therefore it never then forces you to help you make those things better. It defaults to blaming itself, and it defaults to making all those other things feel like they're suffering because of you. So you feel even worse about yourself. And you ultimately make everything even harder. 
I think this entire period, which ended up being about a year, a year and a half, wasn't something that was ever going to end abruptly. It wasn't a dull day and then a purple patch was coming. It was always going to take time to come out of. Just like there were so many things that contributed to it, going as sour as it did, there were so many things that contributed to me coming out of it. And to be honest, I'm still wandering that path now. I have no choice because a lot of damage was done. Um, and I'm still fixing a lot of those things now. But if there's one thing that I learned in that time, it's that there's three pillars to me as a person and me as a creative. And that's my mental health, something I won't disregard again. That's my passion for creativity, something I won't ever take for granted again. And that's the boring things in life, the parts of everyone's lives. I won't ever ignore them again either. The thing is with these things, they all contribute to each other. When I'm creative, I'm happy. When I'm secure, I'm happy. When I'm happy, I'm creative. When I'm happy, I take care of things better. And when I'm secure, I can be creative. And when I'm secure, I don't have to work for happiness. It can be there if it is there. And if it isn't, I don't I don't have anything that I can blame that on. I'd like to simplify this though as much as possible. It was about finally listening to myself in a nutshell and being honest with myself. It was about dropping this moral high horse I'd built from orchestra in every scenario I'd ever been in up to that point and coming out unscathed. It was about accepting change and growth as part of me and part of my character instead of having to solve everything first and remaining the same. And it was about being okay with the type of person who I was. Because when you are, but you're trying to change everyone else to be like you, it looks like you aren't anyway. And when you genuinely aren't, you literally have no blueprint to give yourself to give yourself any sense of grounding. Staying away from work and design and creativity for a second, it's the thing I'm most proud of achieving in my life so far. Look, I know many people have it a lot tougher, and a lot of the time their circumstance is out of their control, unlike mine. I really do appreciate that. Um, but I somehow found it within me to gradually build back to the me that's talking in this podcast today, and I recognise the shape of him. I quite like him. I no longer want that past version of me to do well, like I was convinced he deserved at the time. He didn't deserve it. And maybe I don't. Maybe the next version won't either. But I can't wait to see what version of me saunters away next into what lesson that I need to learn next. And that's a great place to finally be. So that's part two. That's the low point, really. It's been all right. I'm not complaining. But that was me probably at the bottom. This part of the podcast has been hardest to articulate for a number of reasons. One being that I was torn between wanting to do, wanting to show how bad it really felt and do that justice. And then also one being that I was not wanting to make it feel like attention seeking or make it seem like my problems of that time were more worthy than other people's. And also I think because I'm just not in that place at all now. So it's difficult to dip back in and it's also hard to try and make sense of it. But there was a reason I can do it now, because back then, if I could, I wouldn't have been in that mould, and I'm so glad that mould cracked. Off the back of that period, my line of work changed massively, and I ended up basing a lot of my projects around these types of conversations with myself. So in part three, that's what I want to get into. I want to talk a little bit about other pieces of work from other creatives that have kept me inspired enough to keep me moving away from this dark period. And then I want to talk about my own practice and the work that I've produced. So like I said at the end of part one, if that was a taste of the real world, let's now step into my world. So, good luck.
So, the third and final part. So what things have influenced me over this last significant period in my life? Well, as I said, I'm sort of coming out of quite a dull period in my life prior to this. So I think subconsciously I've tried to rebuild my image through what I've taken in. I think subconsciously I've tried to rebuild the image I have of myself in my own mind. And then subconsciously tried to make a new lens to see the world through again. So I'm going to get straight into it. In terms of art, the different oil painters, Gideon Rubin and Shannon Carter-Lucy. Um, life drawers and painters, specifically Clyde Steadman. Uh, all-round painter, poet, sculpture, all-round trailblazer, Danny Fox, uh, Claude Monet's Exploration of the Garden, uh, analogue collagist, Fib Bonacci, uh, different conceptual photographers, Richard Long and Peter Caden, uh, fashion, so fashion something that I'm really into, um, but it's a different sustainable fashion brands like Antibad, Laraud, Story, MFG, Mara Hoffman and Bird. Uh, and then Paul Smith's different collections that released, uh, the Dreamer print, the Precious Stones print, Artist Studio and Dino prints. Uh, music's always been a massive one for me. It sort of soundtracks everything I do. And then probably my biggest inspiration, Ben Howard, but his latest record, uh, Noonday Dream, and then the follow-up, um, Another Friday Night, Hot Heavy Summer and Sister EP. And then the extra tracks with Bird on a Wing and Heave Ho. The Nationals, I'm Easy to Find record with accompanying Mike Mills directed short film starring Alicia Vikander. Uh, Tom York's various projects, all the stuff that he does with Radiohead and then an old Radiohead album, The Benz. But yeah, his work on Suspiria and then his solo work with uh, uh, on Anima, which I think, I was going to say a short film, but I think Netflix called it a Netflix visual piece that was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. But Jen Wazner, A Flock of Dimes and Why Oak, uh, Falls and the two records they released this year. His Golden Messenger, Eleanor Tonra of Daughter, Sharon Van Etten's Remind Me Tomorrow, Bon Iver's I Come or I, Arthur Russell. Uh, then different collaborative projects, uh, Big Red Machine and the record label that that was released through uh, Aaron Desner's People and the different, the different creatives that work on that like John Lowe and Justin Vernon. Uh, ben Howard again teaming up with his manager Owen Davis to create Hell Up Records. Um, and then I've been listening to a lot of older artists of late Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Bowie, Towns Van Zant, Jerry Rafferty, James Taylor, um, Mazzy Starr, Neil Young, Pink Floyd, Sinead O'Connor, John Martin, Gillian Welsh, Nick Drake. There's a hell of a lot in there. Different writers, so Albert Camus, uh, Joseph Conrad, Graham Greene. Um, and then different poets, Leonard Cohen and Thomas Pringle. Places has been a big factor for me, really, this year. Um, normally, I sort of live within the confines of my mind a lot. The place doesn't always directly inspire me, but if it does, then amazing. But there's been some places that I've never been to. So Nicaragua and its strange contrast between its exotic landscape and then its sort of horrible political landscape. Um, Sri Lanka, Patagonia south of france and then some places i actually have been this year so paris mount Ainos and kefalonia and then gunwalla on the lizard lick peninsula down in devon cornwall where different experiences i've had and different skills i've acquired uh, so sea swimming and life drawing are two things that are an ongoing thing in my life now different charities that i've come across there's the coastal arts charity i think that's how it's worded um that basically look at reforming prisoners through giving them creative means 
Two a billion, which is about gender inequality, and then surfers against sewage, which is about cleaning up beaches. Different podcasters, so the True Geordie and Matt Bars Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast, both put the art back into conversation, and heavily inspired me to do this. Really, different people, and before I say the people, I I need to say it's purely in an aesthetic sense. I'd I'd actually love to say it's what they actually do or what they create, but sometimes just a person's look or a person's lifestyle has inspired me of late. So that's jewellery maker Erin Wayson, Erin Wayson, uh, Parisian model Louise Fillane or Hawaiian model Zoe Stone. And then I've studied a couple of just random things this year, uh, one being garden flowers and then one being birds. It's been a real prolific year. Well, not prolific, but it's been a real vibrant year in terms of what I've enjoyed. It's felt at times like all these creators have released work just at the right time for me. It's like they were somehow there to purely help me. Um, And it's felt like that because these things have never spoken to me as loudly as they have done right now. It feels like they've re-taught me prolificity. It feels like they've taught me new ways of exercising my creativity to get that balance better. And like I say, subconsciously, I've used them to rebuild my image. Uh, the one in my mind and then the one that I use to make a lens to see the world through as I said before I've definitely done this before I think just in a darker sense I think when I've done it before it's been inspired by the side of me that wanted to show the bits I was struggling with Um, meaning my identity would have been based more around the struggle and my preoccupation with the struggle Uh, I'm not sure if I thought it was cooler or more edgy who knows maybe that's what I'm doing again maybe that's what I'm doing again now but it doesn't feel like that it feels like it's being born from genuine enjoyment, from a willingness to see and a willingness to move forwards with these things. It's sort of funny, when you're in the midst of it and you're just enjoying these things, you don't really know what you're doing, like you're not actually building anything, but in hindsight, across the board, you can pinpoint certain through lines and themes, and I'm only really realising that now, but both from the bolstering feeling that I'm getting, where I feel a real in tune with a sense of myself, and I'm I'm not ashamed of what I enjoy anymore, but just in hindsight and and in making this podcast. But yeah, there's specific face value aesthetics in there. There's these real specific undertones in there. There's a specific visual and sonic resonance. Uh, And thematically, they wrap up a number of things that were going on in my life at the time. I I think it's really important that you carry around the things you admire. And you make them part of your identity. They're the thing; it's the things you're inspired by, or the things you respect, um, and they are a major part to a person's character. It's the indirect things that you allow to affect your life, uh, and they reveal what you'd be proud of. They reveal what you'd stand up tall against, and what you'd be willing to release in some way. And maybe that's me projecting quite a lot, because I know a lot of things can just be about enjoying something. Look, I still have my guilty pleasures. I still have things that don't have to always tell me something. But the things that I really enjoy, the things that I'm quite outwardly about what I enjoy, do tell me something. And I think then the work that I produce in some way tries to place the same importance on that. And I try to make other people feel how the work that I love makes me feel. So I'm going to use that as quite a clever segue. Um, and staying firmly in the now in part three, I'm going to talk you through some of the major projects that I've been working on. Some from when I was still at university, some in the time since, but all ones that I feel say a lot about me and a lot about my practice. Um, so the first one that I want to talk about, 
Beyond Belief was a purely conceptual project. It was purely about exploring it freely, with no rules on where I was heading or what outcomes I would end up creating. It was my first genuine t- ch- taste of just chasing the muse, really. Growing up, I always picked projects based on what my final response would end up being. And I used to convince myself that this was because I was headstrong or whatever. But generally speaking, in all honesty, I think it was always because it shortened the in-between. It shortened the research aspect of it and I could just get straight to the making. But with this project, the research side of it and the figuring stuff out was always going to be the main thing. It was never a concept that I could claim to know everything about which humbled me from the start and it meant that I could have it meant that I could leave it open ended it meant that I could be deliberately ambiguous and actually learn as I went and I think each one of my responses to the overall concept of belief were were lifted massively by this approach so I created a photo shoot based around our belief in everyday objects like alcohol makeup cigarettes and coffee and what I did was I photographed the transition so how someone can be in a bar and feel nervous about talking to someone and then they have a drink and then they're relaxed and then they'll talk to people or how someone can feel insecure and then they can apply makeup and then they feel confident or how someone can feel stressed and anxious and they can have a cigarette and feel more relaxed or how someone can feel tired and not ready for the day but after a coffee they've got all this energy. Um, I made a mixtape that showcased how belief is used in music regardless of era, genre or audience and to be honest it transcended music because beliefs used in all forms of art as a, as a medium or a subject matter. Um, and I had designed all the packaging for that because I did it in a cassette tape to a little nod to the timeless factor but it was one of those cassette tapes that you plugged headphones in so it was a real it was a bit on the nose really in that sense um, I made a Top Trumps game called Holy Shit I Can't Believe It Top Trumps which I think is one of my best named projects that I've ever made um, and that was where I wanted to do something that was more about the experience so while playing the game it was only say it was only while playing the game you realized that the truth behind the belief isn't necessarily the most important thing um take a game scenario where santa is pitted against religion and one of the factors is integrity santa would have won in my game because i mean it's arguable but santa's there to make kids happy it's a there's there's no controversy behind santa Whereas religion, even though there's a, a much weightier backstory to religion, has would argue, people would argue that it's caused a lot of wars or it's been the cause of a lot of conflict or some of its rules are quite outdated. So Santa's taking religion. And it's only then, it's at that point where the people who are playing it go like, ah, like everyone has their own take on belief. I then made a, a book called um, A Visual Dissection. Um and it was it was about me dissecting belief through different things so i used football and its links with with like um stereotypical religious structures so like how you go to go to the stadium which is like a church you go on a weekend uh, you eat certain food you sing certain songs you worship certain people i used the royals and how they used ideology and hierarchy and wealth to impose a belief in them uh, I use Nike and how they use certain athletes and a slogan of just do it to 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 keep a belief in their products and ultimately sell them. And then I used Bonivers 22 a million with a lot which had a lot of lyrics about 
bolstering belief within somebody. Um, yeah, and what I did with this book was I I I made sure I acknowledged the controversy behind belief because it's not it's not just about being amazing and feeling better or or everyone's beliefs are fine. There's a lot of controversy behind these things. So with the album that was based around a lot about making someone feel better. He ended up cancelling a tour based on his mental health, which is obviously fine, but it was quite ironic. Uh, obviously, with there's a lot of um, controversy with Nike and the way the products are made. Uh, obviously, at the minute, there's a lot of controversy with the royal family. They're probably the most controversial family in the world, and they're actually supposed to be the pinnacle of society that we believe we should strive towards. They're supposed to be void of all controversy. And then there's a lot of controversy in regards to football. Uh, a lot of there was a lot of corruption at the time. There was a lot of racism at the time. Um, and then I dotted a few little things in there, like how justice mirrors morality, how we look at life through rose-tinted glasses, um, how we, how belief forms the backbone of society, and how um, we never really have transparency anymore. And I, like I said, I did them visually. So I used like an X-ray of a back, and I had like. Um, backbone on one page society and the x-ray in the middle so it read as backbone society uh, i had justice and then i had a mirrored page that had morality written on it so you had justice mirrors morality um so yeah that was my beyond belief project it was probably the biggest project that i'd ever done at that time um and it was a subject matter it was probably the biggest subject matter that, that i'd ever tackled as well at that time moving on uh, the next project that I want to talk about is my 600 people live visual sensory project. And it, this project is an example of me wanting to push the sensory feeling or the ways of delivering a project beyond the normal conventional means. I've always been someone who likes to enjoy things from all different angles. And like I said about my inspirations, if the art I take in and the art that I put out is there to imitate life in some ways, then trying to tackle a project in a way that can include more than one sense, say sight, sound and a feeling, then that's what this was. It was a chance to explore lighting and live visuals and the overall feel of a theatre production. Uh, the theatre production itself was Third Angel, 600 people. But nothing about this project was conventional really, as you'll hear what, I, what my responses were, or rather the way I delivered them. But I created them up with an original concept. So the talk itself was about the universe and space really but for me what he was doing was telling us something about people so i actually made a nebula out of people out of 600 people i then created the live visuals to accompany that i then spent all winter in a shed back home in yorkshire building a prototype model i'd never done it before there was definitely no sort of um plan to it but I just went for it. I was a big like advocate at the time, just working with what you've got. And I built this model theatre that housed like an iPad screen and, and the banners that I was going to use and that had space to hide Christmas lights where the little, little end of the light would poke through holes. So you had this look and feel of what the cinema or the theatre, what the talk was going to be and was going to be like. And then I was very lucky because I was able to fully realise it in a big room. So I had it on a big screen. I had my banners at the side of the screen and I had the lighting set up how I wanted it to be, which was amazing to see something go from like uh, the original concept to in real life. Uh, the next project that I want to talk about is one called Track, and that was a UX UI reimagining of a system that I hated. Track was quite personal to me at the time. 
because it was the first project that I'd done, like I said, born out of hatred for something. It was born out of a motivation for the need and a want of a better system because at the time I was commuting from Manchester to Sheffield every day and the trains were just terrible. It was late every day. You couldn't complain. You couldn't ever get a refund. You couldn't ever do any better. And I, I guess this was the first time I took on that role that some designers take on where they try to help something, um, where my work became a lot more, a lot less expression-based. But I had a very clear idea of where this project was heading, and that was going to be in reimagining the system for booking trains, but only, only once I'd explored all that I felt um, made my daily commute a fucking disaster. Um, so I made a, a, a shot on ambiguous photo shoot that, sort of depicted all the different stereotypes of commuters uh, where I put one person in different outfits to show how we shouldn't judge them based on what they wear or what they look because what I found was you'd maybe get an old person let through because they couldn't check their ticket but then someone in a rush but but was just a young kid or whatever would be stopped and then they missed their train I wrote a blog about the victimology complex of all three components to to national rail the corporates the staff and the passengers and how that affects the nation as a whole um i shot a short film showing how a delay can ruin your day and if you knew that you were going to be delayed how you could set up your day very differently um and then i made like the end point to this project was to create an ios app um that placed an importance on closing the dialogue loop for passengers uh, I introduced an Uber-style rating system, and then I tried to introduce familiar design elements that were familiar to customers. So things like the orange and black screens, the ticket stubs, the receipts, and that was sort of that was my final year at university. Those three projects, all very different. But then moving on, the next project uh, was Patch Twenty Two, and Patch Twenty Two was the first project that I self-funded and released under my alias thinking man's designer and it was my first project after leaving university and it was my response to the catch 22 scenario of sustainability within fashion hence the name patch 22 it was a response again void of any authority on the matter that just aimed to contribute to that very prevalent issue within that industry i guess my overall take on it was to create something quite whimsical quite outlandish and quite highbrow but very cheap using materials people would generally look down on and then show how you can recycle reuse repurpose and contribute back to numerous different positive things while only making a very small non-sustainable contribution so yeah i made a patchwork coat made entirely from reused and repurposed repurposed garments either some of my own or bought from charity shops so even in acquiring materials i was contributing to different charities i think it was i think it was seven that i contributed to but it was jeans, it was skirts, it was t-shirts, it was shirts, it was jumpers, it was all sorts really. Um, I then made an infographic that detailed all the specifics of the garment and all the sustainability factors. I think overall I made an £11 something con non-sustainable contribution. The cut in total only cost me £57 to make. And then I think overall there was only 402 grams of waste because a lot of it was repurposed. And then I ended up making all the supporting branding elements and I did the photo shoot in an auction, again, to show the contradiction between how you can make these amazing garments out of such sort of, um, what's the word without being disrespectful? Out of tap, really. And then that brings me to my final project that I want to talk about. 
and that was called Today I, and it was an anthology of poems. So it was ten poems. It was Time Tells Only Me, Contradictions, Red Eyes, Blue Light, Low Bar, What It Must Mean, The Doldrums, Red Eyes Part 2, The Kids, The Sun Comes Out for Hair, Matrimony, and then Today I. It's something that I've only just finished, and to be honest, is still going through its polishing as an overall project. But it's the longest running project that I've ever worked on to date, with it being currently 14 months and counting. It actually shares a lot of similarities with the dangers of the big little picture in the sense that in its creation it has inadvertently helped me through a lot. I think Today I is my best work so far and not necessarily in a design sense or conventional sense but it's the most honest I've ever been with my work. It's the most surprised I've ever been at what I've created and the fact that it has generally articulated probably the journey that is my life to this point constantly blows my mind really. It explores themes of a lack of understanding, of a general despondence with a surrounding reluctant way of thinking, of my underlying petulance and arrogance, uh, what lens is the right one to see the world through and of the dissonance between the human condition and technology. It explores themes of the dilemmas of the fulfilling life, driven by ambition or rather a lack of. It explores themes of the question of oneself, the lack of identity within a place, or of being able to show the worst version of yourself. It explores themes of of giving up, and the sad idea that some kids these days don't know a different world to the one that they're growing up in. More positively, it explores themes of being proven wrong and being proven right, and being at the mercy of your emotions. Themes of clarity of the aligned character, of the simple articulation of amazing feelings from ridiculous people. And finally, the choice of ultimately finding peace by placing the same importance and weight on happiness as we often gift darkness. Off the back of the anthology, I released a piece of writing, uh, revealing more of an insight into these themes, accompanied by three conceptual photos, one called The Mountain, one called The Descent, and one called The Stillness, that depict the overall physical landscape of the anthology, but in general, the transition of from poem to poem. So... The, the mountain is the first three, the descent is the middle four, and the stillness is the last three. And I specifically wanted to end on this project because I believe where it left me is somewhat of the best insight into me as a person now, and also as a creative person. I was able to detail the mountains I needed to climb. I went deep down into the descent, but I was able to work my way out of them and remember that this is the reason why we do that. The interesting part about the end of this project was Throughout its entirety, it always felt like it was about finding peace. And ironically, just as I found it, when I rested on that plateau for just a second, my mind went mad and instantly went looking for the next lesson to learn. It felt like my faith had been restored, my capabilities were now bolstered, and I'd, I had a renewed willingness to find what the next lesson could be. However tough, however difficult it might be, because I knew I'd be alright. So in summary, I like to think, Across the board, you can see or hear that I'm not particularly bound to any style or any medium or any subject matter and that the idea always takes preference. I love trying new things and adding new things to my creative arsenal and I love genuinely exploring whatever it is that I'm working on, hopefully always maintaining integ integrity and keeping it fulfilling on my side of it. It's where I took my current alias of Thinking Man's Designer from, and if I can close this section by reading a small passage from the About page of my website, I think I'll have revealed enough about what I am as a creative to ultimately end the podcast here. 
So it goes. Now then, of course it starts like that at this point. Could you expect anything else? But it goes on to say, I'm a cross. I'm a. I am a cross disciplinary creative, applying my introvert thinking to the extrovert world. To write, to discuss, to challenge, to make, and to think are all aspects of my practice that practice that enable me to create ambiguous and explorative work. Never satisfied, always passionate, and forever playful. I make to help you think. So this is the final add-on segment, if you like. I know I said at the start there's no rules or uh, there's no pressure for this podcast to carry on any specific style or format or whatever, but this is something that I do want to introduce into future episodes too. Uh, It's something that I want to ask each and every guest that I get on. Um, So this is like a closing question. I've chose this question because it's simple. There's no right or wrong answer, and on many layers it reveals a lot about that person. I guess it is a spin on the whole array of other existential questions like how would you like to be remembered? In fact, it's pretty much the same question, just maybe living within a different tense. And hopefully that takes a bit of weight off the question for anyone that has to answer it. So they aren't bound to articulate in something they're working towards or feel nowhere near for right now, or feel like they have to then say the right thing and they can just say what they think of. I'm hoping with placing the question in the present, whoever answers it will reveal their relationship with their past and their future, with themselves fundamentally, and obviously with creativity, seeing as that's what this is all about. Ironically, the question does contradict some aspects of what I want the question to do, as it does place an importance, albeit without meaning to, on other people, and that's not particularly fair. But we all struggle with aligning our character amongst other people. We spend a lot of our lives figuring out ways in which we can just be that tiny little bit closer to how we want to be thought of, seen as, treated like, or accepted for. So the question is as follows. What is the one thing above all that you wish other people would see you as? I guess for me it's an interesting one. I worked out a long time ago, even if I ignored it, it was always going to be in what I left behind creatively. Someone once wrote in a notebook that I got for Christmas that people will forget what you did, people will forget what you said, but they won't forget how you made them feel, and it really stopped me in my tracks. Being someone in the past who's done nothing, done absolutely fuck all, and been very lazy, I want to say I'd be someone who just did it, you know, someone who left a legacy in what they created. Being someone who said a lot, said a lot of bullshit, and spoke myself into a lot of corners, I'd love to say someone who knew exactly what they wanted to say, and then said it simply, again, through my work. But being someone who feels a lot, who feels everything quite deeply and accepting that that's going to be a constant thread in my life I hope to be someone that's seen as someone who gets it who understands life and people for all its grittiness and ugliness as well as its magic and its beauty and who in some way tried to retell that ridiculous story through what I put out in this world so there we have it episode one in the can and I can't believe it really I hope whoever listened to this enjoyed it I hope you have a clearer picture of me and everything I'm about and what I'll be bringing to the table as host of future episodes. I hope you understand maybe a little bit more about what this podcast is going to be moving forward. And in all honesty, I can't wait to release one with a guest where there's more of a back and forth and you have more of a conversational style of podcast to listen to. But this one was important nonetheless. So stick around. There's some real firecrackers of episodes potentially lined up with some truly inspiring guests that will really push this narrative we've opened up into all sorts of weird and wonderful territories. So thanks for listening to episode one, and hopefully I'll see you for episode two. Cheers.
my making history You're my working out Only what the moon does To the devout 